This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories. Readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we, are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we, are we, are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up, are we Europe? Boom. Hey there. Today we're listening to the first episode of the new season from Europorama, a podcast produced with Are We Europe? Sail with us to the open source fictional city of Witness, where we'll discover how cities might look in a post-climate change world. Here is Sailing to Witness. Welcome to Europarama, the border-breaking podcast about science fiction and the future of Europe, brought to you by Are We Europe? I'm Giuseppe Porcaro. I am Alberto Cottica. I'm Ivan Gerard. And for this season, Europarama joined forces with Edge Riders and their Science Fiction Economic Lab, as they had an incredible idea. Instead of writing academic papers, they decided to channel out-of-the-box economic thinking around building the fictional world of Witness. In each episode, we will explore a part of this universe as it's being created, and you will learn more about how you can also contribute to its making, as this is an open source world that everyone can use. Today, we will begin our exploration of Witness and its history. Alberto will accompany me as co-host for the whole season. I'm very happy to share this journey with him. But first things first, Alberto. How and why this idea of using a fictional word and science fiction for an economic laboratory? Well, there's basically two ingredients that come into this. One is that edge riders, you know, we are children of the storm. We were born out of a former crisis, a financial crisis, and people were really coming together saying, ah, this can't go on, you know, we have to do something, the system has to change. I was trained as an economist, and, and as a puppy economist in my green youth, I was uh, an idealist. So economics seemed to be like an idealistic enterprise, and I could see all these big ideas that had been thrown around by our forerunners, you know, Marx uh, was dreaming of a world that's a completely different system. Charles Fourier and Robert Owen and Olivetti were sort of enlightened entrepreneurs that would read the best economists of their time and try to put these ideas into practice in their businesses. And these, these ideas, the utopian socialist, the community movement by, by Olivetti. As I became an economist, a professional economist, all this was gone. Suddenly it was game over. Suddenly it was the only game in town is marginalist economics, neoclassical, and all that the best minds in economics do is they tweak the model. And they know the model is broken. It's broken theoretically, and it doesn't work that well in practice either. So we have a deficit of imagination, and we thought, well, maybe we can 
escape the sort of very iron cage of, of the authority of economics, which is so great, and, and can retreat into a space which is a bit more fun and a bit more informal. And there we can play seriously and try to come up with some credible, rigorous, yet completely alternative economic system. Well, that's incredible because indeed there is a very little uh, out-of-the-box research, but also, I mean, myself being involved in an economic think tank, I, I have to say that more and more we are actually discussing about uh, the possibility of using other methodologies in order to somehow modeling. For example, we often have done things like role plays, role games, simulations, and things like that. So your idea of using science fiction is not that far-fetched in terms of uh, readiness, even of mainstream researchers to, to start to think on that kind of direction. So I think this is very promising and comes at a very, very, very tidal moment where we are, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and where we want it or not, there is going to be a rethinking of a lot of practices that we take it for granted from before. But Yuda, thanks so much for joining us. You are connected from Sri Lanka and the time zone is not really on your side and you're still awake uh, for, for being with us. Normally, normally I'd be like, I'm usually quite awake at this time, but just these two days, I've realized I need to sleep a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say that I'm pretty impressed about your world-building experience. You you wrote several novels, uh, Number Cased, The Unhuman Race, and several other stories. And you were nominated for the Nebula Award. And you are also a researcher on data algorithms uh, for, for a think tank, Lirne Asia, which is working across the global south. So you're bringing together these, these two aspects that Alberto was just saying, the, the research side and the storytelling side. How did you get involved in Witness? It started with, with me being aware that Numbercast was on the Edge Riders wiki of uh, Econ Science Fiction. I think Alberto had started that and Numbercast ended up on that. When the call came out uh, for, the, for this project and the, the spec was essentially, we want to create a world that lets us think about economic futures I was immediately interested because I'm not an economist. I've brushed up against economics and I've, I've, I've always found it rather puzzling. From where I come from, uh, which is programming and which is writing and world building, a lot of my thinking, a lot of my books involve systems of thought and systems of governance and how people, um, how people function inside these and sometimes against them. And that's, that's actually quite a lot of what I, what I think about. At the same time, when I, when I sort of tried to approach economics, particularly very rational agent work, I've always been puzzled because I've looked at this stuff and gone, hang on, this doesn't explain the fashion industry. This doesn't explain like all the stupid choices that people make, like having children when you're, when you're, when you're poor, like my, like my family did. Millions of day-to-day -day little things that I observed living in Sri Lanka, which is sort of, I would say, third world country that just came out of a civil war. You know, a lot of, a lot of what happens in the context of wars and so on, these, these things aren't really explained by theory. And then I looked at the map and the map was, in most cases, what I saw was just basically stolen algebra that was like just not robust. So I, I started digging into this as best as I could. Uh, and, you know, reading Kahneman and Tversky, for example, and, and I developed an interest in this. So when, when Ned Riders put, put out the call, I was like, aha, right, okay, this could, be a, this could be a chance to learn about this stuff. I almost missed the deadline because I was thinking about what 
possible space we could create that let us have a look at economic futures, but not apart together, like so close together that you could look at the boundary and go write this and this, and this is what happens when the two interact, like close enough together that interactions would be sped up instead of having drastically different models on different parts of the world, for example. So hence the digging into the floating cities, the UN aspects of futurism to kind of create a reasonably believable pseudo history, like this narrative framework to allow these like vastly different economic uh, systems to sort of be plug and play inside of a story uh, and, a, and a historical, a pseudo historical uh, structure. And then I typed all this up in an email at the last minute and turned it off. And uh, Edge Riders reached out and said, well, hey, you have an idea. We like it. Uh, we want to change some things. Let's, shall we do this? And, and so you became, you became the master storyteller, uh, the master world builder. I don't know how you, you've been called in the, in the community uh, for, for witness, uh, Alberto. I suggest the architect, duly capitalized. The architect, <laughs> you are the architect with a big A, with a big A. Our listeners will want to l learn more and, and actually see more about witness very, very soon, because otherwise we keep speaking about it without knowing what, what, what is it? Your idea is basically you manage to have um, a storytelling frame, which at the same time is able to test multiple variables, multiple theories, multiple possible practices, multiple policy making methodologies or, or social contracts. And that's fascinating because basically you, you build a multiverse. You just don't build one single word. You build a word that can contain many words at the same time. Without further ado, I would like to jump into a space-time machine and teleport the three of us in the world of witness because the best thing is to go there and actually start to explore. Imagine a vast ocean, right? And imagine that you can vaguely see in the distance land, like the hint of mountains, like dark clouds across the horizon. And if you look too far underneath the waves, you might see the, the ghosts of dead cities, like skyscrapers in the depths, because we are in a post-climate change world. And on this world, as we travel across the ocean, you start seeing what improbably looks like a city in the middle of the ocean. And as you get closer, you realize it's not just a city, but a city of cities, vastly different architectures, uh, this, this ring of completely different habitats linked together, diametrically opposed to each other in some cases, but still hanging on to each other, because that's all they have. That's all they have is each other. And if we, if we look really closely at this, you see that uh, there are eight different little sort of cities linked to each other by infrastructure, by thought, by deed, by political history. And through all of these run a single train. It's called the migrant train. Of these districts, as they call themselves, has a completely different social contract. And you, as a citizen of this giant mega city, the city of cities, if you feel like you don't belong where you are, you can get on the migrant train and move to where you feel you belong. This city called Witness was an outgrowth of a last ditch attempt from the, you know, the last. What, what was left behind of the United Nations to preserve the human race as, 
as climate change began to ravage the planet to like at enormous scales and they they fell back to an idea they had been considering in 2019 which was floating cities there is a real project about that oh yes 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 Yes, yes, yes. This was based on an actual UN obsession because the UN has been talking about floating cities because the history of this is this is the remnants of a UN project, this city. They tried to set something up and it didn't really go the way they planned it. But again, if we are creating something that speaks to the not too distant future, we still have to root it in an obsession that we know the UN had, which is citable and which, which exists and it's floating cities. So the the first district essentially was this place that was supposed to be run by committee this this titanic survival arc that was supposed to be built slowly as things went along eventually reconnect to the landmass as put things back together serve as a communication hub except things went wrong witness did not depart as planned it it had to leave in a bit of a hurry and in that hurry it took everyone who was working on it at the time including lots of migrant labor from all over the world lots of workers from surrounding towns actually putting the infrastructure for this place together pretty much anyone who was nearby anyone who had to be saved was bundled onto this and they didn't really get with the program they didn't want to so for a few years this place ran according to like a loose very bureaucratic form of contractualism and then it began splintering when you speak about some sort of bureaucratic uh, uh, i mean you speak about the united nation and this being a project of the un and so on are you thinking about some real world kind of uh, experience that that you you were building well, I'm from i'm using bureaucrat here as in the original sense of the term which is someone who implements predetermined rules for governance and these are tightly this is a very tightly rule based system which a lot of people didn't agree with because they were uh, migrant workers in particular were being marginalized and they felt they had no say in this political system like they were floating out into a future where they felt like they had absolutely no control over what was happening and so this began to splinter and so one of the earliest splinters that happened was the covenant which actually alberta should introduce because the covenant was based on one of his ideas he pointed out that benedictine economies were capable of conceiving and executing multi-generation projects on scales that modern day markets can barely conceive of and community and faith and a series of incentives within actually created wonders that last for hundreds if not thousands of years that would be precisely the type of thinking that he would need if he wanted to really survive climate change so i think alberta should introduce the covenant and i'll take the rest you know more than the covenant the, the architecture the city which is big and diverse enough to support multiple economic systems which are different but connected and this connectedness is something we are debating quite a bit right now and of course some some of the economists on the on the week are saying well you know it would be so much easier if you just could postulate completely closed economies now the models become simpler and more tractable and they are right but i'm kind of eager to defend the interconnectedness and the reason is this at the end of the day we are having fun here but somebody has to change the bloody economy and the only way to change it is to start from the economy we have and what that means is that you're going to have to have some viable mutants some mutant economies that are different but exist in the here and now and the environment of the here and now doesn't kill them 
So they are optimized for some future which is not here yet, but they are viable in the present. And these are going to be super open. There is the problem with closed systems are easier to design, but closed systems almost never exist in the real world. Correct. And if you try to implement one, it will die almost immediately. So in practice, uh, I should mention one of our partners, early partners in this, which is the Fondazione di Comunità Messina, the community foundation of a city called Messina in Sicily. And these guys are, are amazing. They're really doing some kind of science fiction economy in their city. And they are very clear on the fact that their city is not sovereign. I mean, they are within a country which is within the European Union, which is within the WTO, and they have to be able to be viable. Otherwise, the, the, the utopia will never come to pass. So I think it's super important that we make the effort to develop the, the possible alt economies of witness in the openness. So basically, you're not thinking about something like Ursula Le Guin, Anares, and Uras, you know, where Anares is completely sealed off. No, 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 no. Those are like those are like two completely closed systems. What this is is multiple different systems that are tethered together by both political history and by the fact that they are linked together and they can actually trade with each other, which brings about all sorts of very interesting problems. Now, in this space, for example, we have this sort of bureaucratic top down the remnants of that original UN project, that's still there, that's a district. Right next to that is an incredibly old school model resurrected for the future. Right next to that is a hyper-libertarian, like peak Hayek, uh, a night watch as close to a night watchman state as you could possibly get. And right next to that are a bunch of anarchists who, you know, who split off with a punk band and went through all sorts of famine and trying to figure out how electrical grids work and how to make themselves agriculture self-sustainable before they came to this model of communities. And a lot of that is modeled on Marina Leda in Spain and the difficulties that they went through trying to be agriculture self-sustainable and ultimately on Vietnamese cooperative economies. Because these are structures that can trade with each other they interact with the world around us. They interact with different models of other economies. They get by without being crushed. And then, you know, a little bit further ahead, you might have an even more bizarre system. Mm. But com coming back to your to the point of the interconnection, because before going on, on each of the districts, I mean, we will explore uh, some of them in, in detail in, in the next episodes of, of this mini-series. Um, but the idea um, here is to understand the architecture, speaking to the architect. There are some commonalities, there are things which brings them together. There is a spec. Now, we are interested in looking at economies. Now, when you world build, there are multiple facets that you look at. You look at language and interactions, you look at culture, you look at how people treat death, how people treat their elders, how people treat uh, younger citizens. Some information has to be privileged over the other. In this case, we're interested in economies. So one of the narrative conceits is that this city, the city of cities, is almost completely alone. They don't know what else is out there. So all they have is themselves. They know they're stronger together. For all they know, they might be the last survivors. Of, of humanity. So it's in their best interest that everybody stick together. They all speak the same language. Now we could have given them different languages. We absolutely could have. Ah, okay. Again, we are prioritizing how, how we understand economies over linguistic drift 
post-climate change linguistic drift, which we do have a little bit of, but we're not bringing that to the surface. They are broadly speaking the same language. Their stories are tightly interlinked to each other. Their identities are interlinked to each other. Their identities are built sometimes in opposition to each other. For example, there is the hyper-libertarian state that I talked about, which was born out of protest, which was born out of marches against bureaucracy and much of the framing of the, the intellectual thought behind that came as a direct response. And bereft of that, bereft of that uh, original superstructure, they would sort of lose meaning. So they're tied together. And they're tied, and then they're tied together by physical infrastructure as well. There's power infrastructure there. That's another hand waving element that we had, which was that this city has generates enough power that if a new city wanted energy, it would have enough to meet its minimum needs. So it's a, it's a common good. It's a public good. And energy is a public good. Yes, it's a public good. And there are districts that, because of their political makeup and because of their social contracts, have said, no, we, we don't want anything to do with centralized power. We, but that's a choice. If they were truly desperate, the city would be able to provide. So there is also the migrant train, for example. If you do not belong, if you feel like you don't want to be in this particular system anymore, if you feel like you have a choice, you do absolutely have a choice. In fact, you have the mother of all choices. You could just literally get on a train and get off at any number of different implementations of a society. Are people also interacting? Can I be friend or, or can I be can can I date someone from another district? It's like can I just go for a ride and then come back? You know, like uh, is there free movement? Yes, you can trade, you can converse. Bad economic structures can still persist. If overwhelming political power and large numbers of violent people with guns will hold a population together. And we wanted to strip away that incentive to keep systems running just with violence and by using, having like a legal monopoly on violence, which could be used to trap people within a system. Right. But these are, it's kind of possible only because you have other things which are somehow shared and, and not scarce, like, for example, energy or like other, other things which everyone feels that in any case they belong to that uh, floating island, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, partly. Partly it's because things are shared. But partly it's, it's, it's a choice that people make to stay together. And people can, of course, leave witness, but then where would they go to? So this is part of the underlying narrative hand waving that keeps everything together. The same way, for example, that in Isaac Asimov's foundation, one person can compute all the many millions of variables required to form incredibly tight uh, predictions, uh, like for thousands of years ahead. That's hand waving, but that's used to explore the greater conceit of free will in the face of determinism. So that's the narrative hand we want with, with this thing instead. There is another aspect which is we should not interpret openness and the open economy in the sense of the open economy too literally. Because in fact, one thing that we need to explore is a policy trade-off, which is maybe you can have this kind of economy, but then you have to restrict foreign direct investment or stuff like that. In fact, I mean, you guys are both too young for that, but I remember something like witness when we have the iron curtain that was crisscrossing europe i remember taking the underground in berlin and that would go under east berlin and you would have the ghost stations of the of a metro pre iron curtain 
patrolled by the border guards of a German Democratic Republic. You couldn't get off, but I mean, there it was. It was a different economic system. You just walked to Checkpoint Charlie, you showed them your passport, and you walked in. And then you could, you know, if you really liked it, you could go to some embassy and say, I want to stay. And then maybe they would let you, maybe not. This is the kind of thing we're looking at. So we have some districts that definitely implement uh, border policies. Borders are a thing. Uh, Trade is is policed. Sometimes it's completely allowed, sometimes it isn't. Uh, Migration is a thing. Sometimes it's completely allowed, sometimes it isn't, just like in the real world. We have have the Dandelion Republic where... The, the structure of the social contract requires extraordinary amounts of surveillance and extraordinary amounts of compute. And therefore, each person added is another compute requirement. And so there's a tight cap. They don't take on a certain level of migrants. I'm getting more and more excited to actually explore this, this whole universe, uh, district by district, uh, but also like getting a little bit more into, into some of the stuff that you're saying, because it really looks like a simulation of, even if it's not a real world, is a realistic world. Like it's something that could possibly modeled. Uh, and this modeling is not completely far off because you are taking into consideration uh, all sorts of realities and all sorts of constraints and trying to, to work the math somehow. And that's, I think, where maybe the role of the researchers, like more from the academic side, could come in this, this universe, right? Absolutely. There was a, an early discussion about that when we did our first webinar back in November and to, to, to unveil the idea. No, Witness was not there yet. You had just come on board. We didn't have a name for it, but we already knew what we wanted to do. And somebody said, uh, an economist called Lydia Zuin, she said, this is all very well and good and we should imagine freely, but we need to be rigorous and incentive compatible. It doesn't work that you would just have to posit some kind of unrealistic uh, human nature in order to make your world work. Yeah, like some sort of deus, deus ex machina kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just a kind yeah, of economic hand wavium that is, is really what you want to avoid. By the way, standard economics does do that. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the replicator of Star Trek, for example, in this world. No, I don't think, I, I think it would kind of defeat the point. But you have something kind of similar when it comes to energy, because you say that energy is somehow, it's not a variable of a problem of scarcity in, in, in that specific world, right? No, it's a little more nuanced. It's the, the, the superstructure can provide you with the minimum you need to make your society run. Mm-hmm. It's not a poor scarcity system as in Star Trek. Right. Because that breaks, to, like, because it's easy to flip into, it's easy to flip from grounded, let's explore the outcomes of a system straight into fantasy, right? So you have to pull back, like for example, um, where we have AI, like the state machine. We've repeatedly sort of cut down its scope and we've tried to tighten it as much as possible to go, right, this this system is only in charge of implementing social contracts that people decide and that that it can simulate and it can generate intelligence, but at the end of the day, it's the people in charge. So we really had to narrow it down so that we don't have the equivalent of Gandalf running around and making magically you know, things better. But also the other thing that you want to do with this is like you, you are creating this universe, but since it's an open source and I 
going towards the end of this first episode, I would like to stress and, and dig a little bit more into the, this aspect. The fact that it's an open source world, you're also open for it to be used by any kind of sorts of creative projects that could sprout out of it. You, you, it's like something that could, could lead to a novel, TV uh, series, or a movie, or even a game, like a video game. How, how are you approaching this, you know, both the creation process, but as well as the part where you're basically providing a platform that might have several outputs? How do you see that? What we build is a, is a, we call it Witnesspedia, is a sort of Wikipedia of witness that provides a lot of background information over the salient features of the stuff that you might uh, encounter in witness and how these societies work. This is not coincidentally how a lot of the fan fiction world works. So you've got things like the Marvel Wiki, you know, you've got things like Star Trek Wiki, and, and there you will have entries dedicated to the main characters, but also to S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, institutions, and, and wars, or important events, and stuff like that. Same, same here. And so what that is, is like Tolkien making the appendix of the Lord of the Rings. It's like a, a frame of reference that you can check against the stories that you invent as you invent it. And so the licensing works like this. The wiki is open source, is Creative Commons attribution. So if you were to set some of your stories in witness, which I very much hope you will at some point, then you can use this material with no strings attached under the terms of a license. You have to quote somewhere that you took the information from the witness wiki, but the copyright of your work is yours and you can do it whatever you want, sell it, whatever. In fact, you can even sprint the witness wiki and sell it if you want, but that's not a very interesting use. In the commons is, is really the economics, the sociology, the history, blah, blah. And then the, the creative work is, is, is more private. Plus, of course, you can always fork. So if you like witness, but you don't like it, that it flows, you want it to fly or you want to put it instead of on earth, you want it to put it in uh, you know, planet, uh, some, some distant planet or in the distant past, whatever, then you just make a fork and that also you can do. That's definitely something amazing that I hope that some of our listeners would use it for, you know. I mean, I take the challenge, maybe it could be nice to have a, a small story on witness or, or even as, as it goes and it progress our conversations in this episode, I might, I might get some ideas about, uh, about the district, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm definitely hoping to set some stories in it. So like, so as is right now, the Witnesspedia provides certain categories of information. For every district, there is a description of the social contract that it runs, mm -hmm. uh, its economy and how that functions, its political history, its topology, and a little bit about its culture and key notable figures that, that were in it. Not enough to have like an entire biography on one of these figures, but enough to go right, these are the cultural touch points that a story set that people who live and work in this district would know. So that's enough to go right, can I imagine a new character in this? And these are the systems that they will have to interact with on the surface. So you'll definitely see the topology, you'll, see, you'll have to interact with the economy. So we, we have that detail and there's a little bit about the philosophies that people use to approach life, religious beliefs that exist, the, the philosophy of edu education and understanding knowledge. And these things also exist at the margins. So these are just these large systems that people are going to interact with if they're telling a story. That stuff is there. What's not there is the story of like, who's the Steve Jobs of 
of witness. We don't know. Come, come in and invent him. You don't know, but we can write. Yeah, and, and see what impact they, see what impact he has. That'd be fantastic. Exactly. No, but that's fascinating. And the more we're going to explore in the next episodes, the more we're going to to get really into the to the deep of uh, of this uh, of this universe. And I'm so excited about it. In the next episode, we will travel to Higge, which is the first district of Witness, and we will discover what happened to what was designed to be this. Uh, nervous system of witness after the fracture that set in motion all this chain of events that basically led to the different districts to secede and create this uh, very multiverse city in the middle of an ocean. I would like to also remind that we have in the show notes the links to the witness wiki that was mentioned before. So you can actually join the community and this incredible experiment of co-creation. So thank you so much, uh, Yuda, and uh, uh, thank you so much to you, Alberto. I'm happy uh, that uh, uh, we're going to share this journey together. And uh, until next time, bye-bye. Greeting from Witness. And I'm hoping to see everyone again, so I don't say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by Are We Europe, a border-breaking media trying to bridge the gaps in European culture and identity. You can become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at 4 euros per month. Just go to areweeurope.com slash member and help Are We Europe build a new media for a changing continent.